0: Last week, there was an uproar and some accusations that started to fly over a 100-meter race at an international athletics competition. A runner from Somalia finished her race not only dead last, that happens, someone always has to be last, but with a time twice that of the time that won the race. Now, if you understand the 100-meter dash, you would understand 20 seconds plus is an eternity in a 100-meter dash. A BBC article quoted the Somalian investigation which discovered the individual running the race was not an athlete or a sports person. Really? I'm so glad that they ferreted out that you know really uh, incredible bit of information because everyone watching the race... Could have come to the same conclusion. Now apparently she knew someone or was related to someone and that person abused their position and their power to put her in the race. And while this situation deals with issues in a foreign sports program, there is something about it that is worth pointing out for us this morning. This young woman was slow and she clearly lacked proper form, but she did accomplish something. She showed up at the starting line. She ran the race, marked out for her in her lane, and she kept going to the finish tape. Now by two seconds into the race, she had to know this is not going to be pretty, but she kept going. Now there are many images and metaphors used for the Christian life in the pages of the Bible. And we encounter one of them, as I said, as Graham said, uh, from the world of athletics today in Hebrews chapter 12. Now remember, the writer is dealing with weary Christians who are tempted to throw in the towel on their race. They have discovered painfully that the Christian life is not a leisurely 100-meter dash, but a grueling marathon fraught with challenges and pain. And his message to them is that they need to persevere and keep going. They needed that song that we sang this morning. They needed to live by faith. Last week we looked at example after example of those who just did just that. And, like this runner that I just uh, told you about, it wasn't always pretty. They were ordinary, flawed people like you and me, but they all kept going. And they lived by faith in anticipation of an eternal hope and reward. And Hebrews chapter 12, what we're looking at this morning, continues this theme and essentially makes the point that it was their moment, the people he was writing to, and it is ours this morning to join the race that others have run before. Look again at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, our main idea this morning is found in that phrase, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Others had done it before them, those who received this letter. Their lives gave witness to a life lived by faith. People we spoke about last week, we read about Abraham, Moses, and others. As I said, they were ordinary and flawed, but they kept going just as the original readers of Hebrews were being urged to do the same. It was their time, and it is our time now to take up the baton, to endure and be faithful in following Jesus. This is our main idea. It's again is conveyed in that metaphor of running with perseverance, the race marked out for us. And we're going to consider two points. And in doing so, we will be keeping with that athletics motif. So just buckle up and get ready, all right? <laughs> so the first point is this, that we have to have the right plan for optimum performance in the race. You have to have the right plan for optimum performance in the race, and you have to keep your eye on the finish line, like Graham was just talking to us about before the children went out. Now, I love this passage because as a teenager, I participated in athletics, what we call track and field in America. I ran several races, but focused on one, the 400-meter hurdles. Now you may or may not be aware that this is a challenging race. One lap around the track with ten hurdles to clear as you go. And initially, when I was new to this, I had no other plan but to run as fast as I could. And when I got to that first hurdle, tried to jump over it without killing myself or looking too foolish in the process, and then started all over again when I landed on the other side. It wasn't necessarily pretty but I was sporty enough to make it work and was able to remain competitive. But one day, someone saw me training and gave me a bit of advice that changed every race from that point forward. They gave me a plan to optimize my race performance. If I remember right, I was supposed to take a certain number of steps before the first hurdle. I think it was 21. By the way, if any of you want to go out and try this advice after the after the service, peel, please feel free to do so. Um, but first, first hurdle, 21 strides, and after that, it was to be 15 strides between hurdles. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then hit first hurdle, boom, one, two, three, four, and then that's what I was supposed to do. And it sounds simple, but the results were revolutionary. In a short time, it took over five seconds off my best time and ultimately another five seconds off of that. It it took me from being kind of competitive to quite competitive at a high level. Having a plan is essential to success in most things. And the writer of Hebrews points his readers to consider how runners approach a race. The first part of the plan, remember we're we're talking about have a plan to optimize your race performance. The first part of the plan is eliminate everything that works against you as you run. Think about it. What do runners wear when they run? Or perhaps more revealing, no pun intended, what do they choose not to wear, right? You typically don't see runners opting for a, a long, heavy wool coat, right? Slip on the cowboy boots, Maybe put, you know, something that you would squat in the gym on their shoulders and say, all right, I'm ready, let's go. You don't see that. Runners opt for clothing and kit that optimizes their performance when running, whatever level that may be, whether you are an Olympian or someone who just goes out and, and jogs the paths in the streets. The Christians here were given a plan to do likewise when it comes, remember, to enduring And being faithful as a follower of Jesus. You should start with asking the question, what is working against you? What is working against you this morning? Because the writer of Hebrews says, let us throw off everything that hinders. And the sin that so easily entangles. Everything that hinders is more of a question of what is wise as opposed to what is wrong. See what hinders one runner may not have the same negative impact on another. Similarly, even within this room, what hinders one brother or sister may not have the same impact on another in terms of sustaining faithfulness to Jesus. This means because it's not about what is wrong but about what is wise, it means considering all kinds of questions that go beyond what is permissible to asking what is best? Questions that are uncomfortable to ask ourselves as we look in the mirror. <laughs> Where do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? What goals get your best effort? What fears consume your thoughts? To answer these things may not identify anything that is definitively sinful. That's not the point. Something that is morally neutral, innocent, or even good in and of itself can become a hindrance and a distraction to what is best. Is it morally wrong to wear a wool coat as you go out for a run? No. Could you find it hinders your progress? Definitely. This is a wisdom call, which can be challenging, and it can be more controversial in some instances. Controversial because these won't necessarily be the same for everybody. You can't say, well, they're doing it, Lord. Look at them. Look at, look at the choices they're making. And it, it may be fine, but is it the best choice for you? And the race marked out for you that we'll talk about later. But they can be controversial as well because it is far easier to operate by rules, do this, don't do this, than it is to operate by principle, maturity, and wisdom. It's far easier to operate by that standard. This is where the right perspective produces wisdom and choices that over time demonstrate maturity. Then you you operate not by asking by a standard of, can I do something, and justify yourself, saying, well, God allows me to do this, as opposed to questioning whether you should in light of a higher goal. So that's whatever hinders. However, there are things that are just plain wrong, that we allow ourselves to get entangled with, clearly. Now the writer of Hebrews could be referring here, when he says to the sin that so easily entangles, to the sin of unbelief. He warns against that throughout the book of Hebrews. Now I think that particular sin may have... um, a potential to stick to every area of our lives and it just gets entangled as it's... um I have in my mind, my mother liked to craft when I was younger. You know, she put together flower arrangements, different things. And you see things called a hot glue gun. Do they have those here? I'm assuming they do. And that glue just has this way, you kind of glue it to something. If you get it wrong, it like, all of a sudden it's like going back to the glue gun and then on your fingers and you try to do more. And it's just all of a sudden attached to to everything and you look like some kind of dysfunctional Spider-Man. And it just gets entangled over everything. And the sin of unbelief is like that, as it impacts our minds, as it kind of wraps around our hearts and our emotions, and then starts to hinder our movement and obedience and different things. It can have a great potential to stick to every area of our lives that entangles us. But sin in general, let's just say whatever the form, is a snare that will entangle and trip us up as we take steps to be faithful and endure, to run with perseverance and endurance in the Christian life. But while it is a a general thing, I do wonder if there is the sin for each of us that we need to be vigilant against uh, getting entangled with. Over uh, too many years in pastoral ministry that I want to count right now, I've noticed that people tend to have particular areas of weakness when life gets Challenging could be anger, you just blow your top. Pride, greed, gossip, dishonesty, finding too much comfort or joy in a bottle, on a screen, whatever it is. I've, I like it, I would say it's like a low water mark. You know when we have a dry summer and the, the, the bodies of water start to, to go down and if it's an artificial body of water, all of a sudden you see things that are below the surface that kind of come out. When the water level goes down. That's sometimes what happens to us. It doesn't really matter, uh, you know, for, for us what it is. Other than you and I knowing our tendencies and weaknesses under difficult circumstances. And once you've identified anything, this is where it's coming to. Anything that is working against the goal. Could be something innocent, good, morally neutral, or The sin of unbelief, or just sin in general, or that sin that's particular for us, whatever it is, when you identify that thing that's working against the goal of enduring and being faithful to Jesus, whatever it is, take action. Eliminate what works against you. It's absolutely essential because this is no ordinary race, it has eternal significance. In the early stages of World War II, this nation, this country, the British Empire, had limited means to wage war against Nazi Germany. As a result, there was a strategy that was implemented to send bombers across to Germany to drop destruction upon vast areas of that country. Planes with names like Halifaxes and Lancasters, among other types, crewed by mostly very young men, would fly incredibly dangerous night missions under horribly uncomfortable conditions, cold, cramps, other things. And after enduring enemy fire from the ground and the air, many planes were so severely damaged and in danger of being unable to make the return flight, a race ensued. Frequently flying just over the waves of the North Sea or the English Channel, these crews would begin jettisoning anything of weight that they could to help keep that plane in the air. Any unused bombs, which was unlikely, (laughs) ammunition, unnecessary electrical equipment, furniture, and at least one instance, the toilet went out. Why did they do this? Because they were in a desperate, race to make it home and suddenly it became clear that anything that hindered that goal had to go you don't care what you're sitting on if the next option is ditching in the sea we are in a race home as well so what has to go what has to go for us So that you and I can make it to our goal of enduring and being faithful to Jesus to the end. We have to have that plan. We have to ask, what's hindering us? What's working against us? Make sure you're asking the right question. Not, can I do this? Is this permissible? But should I be carrying this weight? If I want to endure and be faithful. What is working against you? Then secondly, what race are you running? The writer says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. What the people in Hebrews 11 all had in common is that they lived by faith, but clearly the circumstances under which they were called to live by faith and what they were each called to do varied greatly. And we are not called to run their race, nor should we wish to do so, or wish we could. God has chosen, think of this, let this land this morning, God has chosen that you were meant to live at this point in history. You are where God has placed you for a reason. To live for his kingdom and glory in light of the promise of heaven. As this writer of Hebrews has been telling us, we have been passed the baton in running the race of faith. This is our leg. (laughs) This is our lap around the track. Right here, right now, there is a race marked out for us every day. And surely God can and does lead people to new paths and new places as a part of that lane. Goodness knows, here I am, right? (laughs) But that's not the issue. The question is, will you show up for the race Today, will you show up for the race tomorrow and the next day? Will you keep going in faithfulness to Jesus in the lane that he has marked out for you? Now, what's the temptation with this? You may be tempted to look over a lane or two and suddenly conclude that someone else's lane looks far more appealing than yours. You would much prefer what seems to be their 100 meter dash than your 1600 meter run. Your lane maybe has included loss, loneliness, suffering, doubts, fears, being misunderstood, uncertainty. Their lane seems to have it far easier. Less risk, higher return, nicer holidays, better cars. I think they have cookies. Will you still show up? Will you still keep going? Will you run the race that is marked out for you? Now, before you answer that question, I want us to take one more look at the last part of this plan. If it's eliminate what's working against you, run the lane, the, the race that's marked out for you. Third, have you lost sight of Jesus? Have you lost sight of Jesus? Because in terms of faithfulness and endurance, he's the goat. I hear this all the time in my house. Dad, who do you think the goat is? And he's not talking about a little farm animal you know, last week John had up pictures of Ronaldo and Messi and all these different people. And, you know, I just feel like don't ask a middle-aged American guy who's the goat when it comes to football because I have no idea. But here, in terms of faithfulness and endurance, Jesus, living by faith, is that. And we're told, fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He is the pioneer and perfecter, one writer says, is that he, he blazed the trail. And he ran the race to its triumphant finish. You think of his path. You think of his race. It took him from a stable in Bethlehem through growing up to being an adult in a a public ministry that was not easy, that faced opposition. And then that took him all the way to a cruel, painful cross outside of Jerusalem. And all throughout this course, Jesus never wavered, or deviated. The writer goes on to say in these first few verses, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He saw through the pain and the sacrifice to the joy of a better reality beyond. The reward and recognition he would receive in the presence of his father, to sit down at his right hand, where it says he'll sit, is that place of honor, the place of highest honor. And remember, he is not just returning there as God the Son. He is God the Son who was fully God and what else? Fully human. He's there as one of us. So listen to this incredible promise Jesus gives in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, in light of this. To the one who is victorious, or an earlier translation of the Bible we use here in this church is who overcomes. If you're wearing any trainers this morning that are Nike, or Nike, however you want to choose to pronounce it, it comes from a Greek word, nikao, that means to overcome, to be victorious. And the idea in that is the one who competes, and competes in such a way as to be victorious. You see this athletic theme coming through here, and Jesus says to the one who is like that, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Jesus is going to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus says to the one who endures and, be, and is faithful in following after me, I will allow them to sit on my throne with me. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, we can share in his joy. In his victory, his joy was to do the will of the Father. He went to the cross in place of sinners like you and me that we might have forgiveness and eternal life through him. And if you are here this morning exploring Christianity, which by the way, we are so glad that you are here, this is something that you can do today, If you leave here without hearing anything else, leave here with these words in your mind, Jesus died for a sinner like me. That's why we exist as a church. We say we're here to invite all people into this ever-growing relationship with King Jesus. That's how we enter into relationship with him. We look to faith, look to him in faith and repentance. And this amazing transaction comes when we look to him in that way in sincerity that he Gives us forgiveness and life. He takes our sin upon him and gives us life. That's how we begin. And you, we are meant to keep looking to Jesus in this race. These first few verses conclude at the end of, chapter, uh, end of verse 3 where he says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That was their temptation. That's our temptation. And he had written to them about this great cloud of witnesses in this passage the ones we read about last week. And he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and those witnesses, and this is the image, if you have this in your mind, I'm sorry to destroy it, but it's not the image of these witnesses looking down from heaven from the stand saying, go Steve, go Steve, you know, whoever you are. That's not what this means. They're not cheering us on to victory looking down from heaven. They are not meant to be looking down on us. They are meant for us to look to. They are the witnesses who give evidence. Through them, we see people who have lived by faith in this world, looking to the promise of the next. And now Jesus, here in this passage, is presented as the star witness that surpasses all others. In light of all he faced, he never gave up. And he never gave in, even in the face of harshest opposition, even in the face of going to a cross he did not deserve. But this isn't suggesting, as we might be tended to think, this isn't suggesting we adopt an attitude that if Jesus can do it, we can do it too. right? Look to Jesus, he did it, we'll do it. No, this is not an example thing. I think this idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus is part of an argument that has been building since the first words of the book. From the moment it started saying, Jesus, this is Jesus. This is why Jesus is better. And weeks ago, we read these verses in chapter 2, verse 17. says, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, like us. Fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, hear these words, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) We read, fix your eyes on Jesus this morning. Here at the beginning, he's saying, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful. What are they calling to do? Being called to do? Endure and be faithful. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Now, Jesus' faith is exemplary. We should be looking to him, fixing our eyes on him, and aspiring to be like him in that regard. But I think we are called to fix our eyes and our thoughts on him as our atoning sacrifice and faithful high priest who offers help in our weakness. You're running the race and you feel like, I don't want to go on anymore. I don't like this path. Why did God put me on this path? Why do I, why do I, and he's saying, at that moment, you look to Jesus. And you don't look to him and say, well, he did it, I can do it. You look to him and say, Jesus, help. I can't do this. I'm done. I've got nothing left in the tank. We fix our eyes on Jesus as our faithful high priest who helps us in our time of weakness. We can only endure and be faithful to him by looking to Jesus in this way. We fix our eyes upon the only one who can enable us to run with perseverance but who also intercedes for us as we stumble And fail. See, looking to him in this way, as the writer says, keeps us from being overcome by weariness and choosing to give up. So we've considered what it means in terms of being uh, faithful and enduring. Uh, We've considered that we have to have this right plan. What is it working against you? What race are you running? Stay in your lane. But this element of fixing our eyes on Jesus, I want to go a little further because it ties into the second point of keeping your eye on the finish line. Graham said that earlier in terms before the kids went out, that this individual kept their eye on the finish line and, and runners do that. Even when you run hurdles, trust me, you don't look at the hurdles. You don't even think they're there. You just trust your steps and you look at the finish line. When we are faced with painful and trying circumstances we can be tempted to think that something has gone terribly wrong or maybe even more problematic we have concluded that God is not pleased with us that he can't really love us and allow us to go through suffering or to keep us from being happy But as our loving Heavenly Father, God has a higher call, a higher goal for our lives and our ideas of personal happiness. In fact, the best or only way for him to accomplish that purpose is at times to allow us to face into hardship and learn to endure through it. And if we think about it, this is how, I shall say, normal healthy parenting operates in general. That's In this passage that we read earlier, I'm just going to highlight on a few verses of it. Normal parenting uh, functions in this way from a human perspective. Parents discipline or train their children because it's so much fun. Right? We do it because we consistently hear words of gratitude and acknowledgement of our wisdom gained from years of life experience. In all seriousness, good parents have the wisdom to allow their kids to face into some really challenging stuff. Why? To pay them back, of course. Right? No, no, no. Because we love them. And we know what they don't. We have a vision for their future and development that they can't see yet. And I'll confess, sometimes my timing is abysmal. Sometimes my methods are truly faulty. But we know they will need to develop in ways that only allowing them to muddle through can produce. Now if we do that, Flawed as we are. Why wouldn't we expect God as our Heavenly Father to do the same but to a higher purpose and to aim? Chapter 12, verse 10, the second half says this, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. The aim he has for us is related to fixing our eyes on Jesus. See, God's aim, as we read here, is that we may share in his holiness. The Father allows pain, periods of desperation, seasons of confusion, hardship, because he is masterfully and lovingly working his purpose through them. His discipline, his training may not be pleasant, but it is life-giving training, reaping a harvest of righteousness and peace. You see, God's aim is to make us like the one we're meant to fix our eyes upon in this race. Did you catch that? Fix your eyes upon the one God is transforming you into as you endure and you're faithful through this race. It's not a sign of his rejection. It's a sign of his great love and our true identity as his children that he seeks to train us in this way, that he doesn't just let us go. It's not a sign of his displeasure or rejection, but acceptance. It's not uh, some sign that we have failed to measure up. We all fail to measure up in his eyes, whether we realize it or not. Why does he do this then? It's because our father has placed a higher priority on us sharing in his holiness than experiencing our standard of happiness. He works all things in our lives together for the good of conforming us to the image of his son. And remember, as we've gone through Hebrews, go back in chapter two, verse 10, and there's a statement that Jesus' suffering made him perfect to be the one who would ultimately become our Savior. It was his suffering that God used to make him an appropriate Savior for you and for me. God is using the same process in us. We will never be perfect ourselves on this side of heaven. That ultimate rest, that promised rest will come. But his training, it starts now. And it begins producing the life of Jesus in us now. That harvest of righteousness. What sometimes we talk about this thing, gospel transformation. It's the transformation that comes from the gospel. And this should whet our appetite for that day when we shall be made like him fully. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So as we come to the Lord's table in the next few moments, we are going to handle a tangible reminder of what I've just been discussing. We come together as his children, some struggling, some doubting, some Stumbling, some tempted to stray, others tempted to throw in the towel, but all dearly loved children. And the bread and the cup call us together to look upon and remember Jesus. In this moment, at least, of the chaos of our lives, to fix our thoughts and our eyes on the atoning sacrifice and great high Priest. And it was in light of him that the writer of Hebrews tells us, no matter how hard it gets to endure and be faithful to Jesus, he will help the one who looks to him. And in the process, they will be made more like him. The Father loves us as his children and delights in molding us more into what he created us to be in Jesus. He delights into making us more and more into the image of his son. So as we walk this path, run this race, don't give up. (laughs) And don't give in. Keep going in faith. Getting rid of anything that works against you. Getting rid of anything that works against me. Run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Keep looking to Jesus so that you can endure and be faithful as he makes you more like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Those words are short and simple, but we can't even begin to fully delve into their full depth and meaning. We thank you for Jesus. Give us wisdom and help to do everything that we might need to do to endure and be faithful to him. Please fix our eyes on Jesus, our savior, our great high priest, our help, until, as we sung earlier, the race is finished and the work is done. Along the way, please graciously make us more like him in all things. We confess those things to you now. Those low waterline moments. Those things that entangle us. We confess them. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for the strength to keep on running. Make us more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.